Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today we continue our series of conversations with scholars, historians, writers, and community leaders addressing the questions and searching for answers surrounding the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Amon Arbery, and many, many others. I'd like to welcome Dr. Damaris Hill to Think Humanities. Dr. Hill is a writer. She has degrees in English, creative writing, and women, gender, and sexuality studies. At the University of Kentucky, Dr. Hill serves as an assistant professor of creative writing and African-American and Africana Studies. She is the author of The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland, and a chapbook of poems titled Visible Textures. In 2019, she published her memoir, her latest publication, In Verse, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Dr. Hill, thanks for joining us for this uh, continuation of our conversations on Thank Humanities. No problem. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. As a, as a scholar, um, a writer, a, a professor, a teacher, a mentor to, uh, I'm sure, many uh, young people at the University of Kentucky and, and elsewhere, and an African-American woman who... Um, has thought deeply and uh, at some length about um, this history of racism. And uh, we find that once again, if it ever disappeared, it once again raises its ugly face to uh, all of us. Give me your reflections of the, of the past few days and weeks uh, as you have thought about what's going on. Well, I'd like to always start with, um, with, quotes from from authors that that make me um that make me be reflective and also reflective about the human experience. And James Baldwin says something that I think is pretty profound and he says that racism is so indicative of American culture that it that it peripherates like air. Like sometimes we don't even see how it's functioning, right? And so I think that type of thinking is now at an intersection with democracy. And democracy has always been something that this country upholds, but in the same, it's it's a space of what we call continuity and ruptures. Sometimes all the democracy is coming together, and sometimes the democracy is in the midst of, an, of a negotiation. And that is this moment right now. Democracy is being negotiated. So in the midst of Unfortunately, it's being expressed as extreme violence, right? So the history of this country is that we were a colony. When we formed a country, we decided to give away votes instead of dollars. That became democracy, our social order. And right now, it seems that democracy is no longer being um, fortified with votes, but it's being fortified with violence. And I think it is up to us that are opposed to violence, that believe in humanity, 
that believe in safety, that believe in democracy, to challenge the assumption that violence is necessary in, in all cases. You have said democracy is for all of us. Oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Is there a time that, um, that you can recall in history where democracy ever worked for African-Americans or for white people, for that matter, or people of color? Well, I mean, that's what I was alluding to previously, right? Democracy is a system of voting that was given out because the equity and the finances were not given, right? So we have to observe that it was flawed from the beginning. But in kind, I like to remind people that um, many um, Black women, some of whom are in my book, that are considered um, or that have been considered enemies of the state, they almost have a religious belief in democracy because that is the thing that propels you to hold America accountable. If you do not have a belief in democracy, that exceeds the mythology that you see played out in everyday life, you will not hold your nation state accountable. And when we are contributing tax dollars, time, efforts, values, children, um, military fortitude, we have to be considerate of our, of our human resources and, and how they're being acknowledged in this space. Should we have faith that democracy, who got us into this, can show us a way out of it? I like to believe, and I have to admit, I'm a poet, so I'm somewhat of a visionary and a dreamer. But I like to believe that reform is possible. A lot of what we see in terms of... um, the lack of reform in regard to police policy is closely related to the unions that police have, right? So when we start to think about the bonds and the collectivity that happen in unions, the difference between the unions that we see like with the Teamsters and with the teachers and um with other uh, bodies of laborers and, 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 and people that are employed, right, is the difference, the function of the police union is to break up other collective protests. So uh, that agency that they may provide people that, um, that are invested in maintaining power, right, that agency that this paramilitary organization, and I really like to use paramilitary because they are not military organizations. I am a proud member or former member of the armed services. So it's important to me that I talk about them being paramilitary and not military. There is a difference, right? And so these paramilitary organizations that are paid for, right, out of our tax dollars to serve and protect the assumed human life have often been used as weapons against protecting human life. And I think some people have assumed that that is their only calling. 
and that needs to be revisited and revised. How does it strike you when the military is called on to, uh, if you will, police uh, Washington, D.C. in an effort it is to allow... It is a crime against every United States citizen for the U.S. military to be called against citizens of the United States. It is a crime. It, as, as a member of the U.S. military, we do not make many things that keep people alive. That is not our mission. That is not our mission. That is not our mission. In my opinion, as a former service member, members of the military should never be called against citizens of the United States. When that occurred, uh, do you remember where you were, what you were doing when you heard that, how, did, how it struck you, and, and what if that happens again? There have been many times in history where um, the U.S. military has been used against former citizens. One action um, happened, and I may be, forgive me if my dates are wrong, but in the, the 80s in Philadelphia, there was a pan-Africanist uh, group of people that had decided to live as family. Um, they did not embrace the norms of middle-class American society. And as a result, uh, many members of American culture, particularly of that city of Philadelphia, the home of liberty, um, were annoyed by their living. And the U.S. government actually bombed these people, dropped bombs on their homes, and they died. And this organization was called MOVE. So this has happened before in U.S. history, but I think it's the responsibility of those of us that are invested in the future of our communities, our states, our neighborhood, and what is left of our nation to be strongly opposed to this type of violence. Because this violence is not democracy. It is not democracy. What is it going to take um, to turn that thinking, uh, violence is not democracy, but some, of course, think it is. And I think it's propaganda. They're pretending that it is. They're saying that it is. They're trying to use different um, orchestrations of power to demonstrate that it is. But it is not. And we must remember that it is not. Even if it's presented as normative, it is not. This level of violence is not normal. How do you get to the point that you change that? I think it, it, take, it is the responsibility of us to continue to be in conversation and to have courage not only for our physical bodies, but for the bodies of our grandchildren. Because those are the people that will pay for these mistakes. We will pay, our children's generation will pay, but our grandchildren will surely pay. If we continue to spend our resources like this, and I'm just gonna concentrate on human, um, I'm sorry, environmental resources. If we continue, to neglect our responsibility to our environmental resources right now. Our children will be breathing out of helmets. Our children will not have water to drink. If we continue to allow 
a paramilitary state to dictate the actions and activities of our citizenship rights, our grandchildren will not have rights. Our grandchildren will live in a terrorist state. We will live in a terrorist state, but the terrorist state that our grandchildren will live, will live in is one that we can't even conceive of the atrocities that may happen in that time. Well, maybe someone of African-American descent or someone who has knowledge of plantation slavery could imagine the type of horrific things that might happen in a paramilitary state after generations. So it is important to counter these narratives of normativity with these actions. One of the things that um, the times that we uh, live in and that we have all lived through in the past, it gives us an opportunity to, to look back and not repeat some of those ills. It also gives us an opportunity, you as a scholar, I'm sure, uh, to delve into uh, study that you uh, think is important to impart with that information that write about it. Uh, you, your, your poetry expresses that. Uh, I was sent uh, a passage which included uh, reference to Dr. King's uh, letter from uh, Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. I, want to, I want to read you just a, a passage uh, of that uh, letter and let you comment on uh, the way he terms uh, white moderate. He says, I have almost reached his, uh, the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, and so forth. Give me your interpretation of what Dr. King was saying almost 60 years ago. Right. I mean, I mean, I think that this is somewhat of a reoccurring conversation in in United in the United States. But I think what he was trying to argue is that what are we willing to invest in a better society? Right. All of us have privileges, but we know in our current political climate, the currency of white skin operates with a certain level of privilege. Uh, that it probably hasn't operated, you know, has a certain level of cultural currency, right? And so what are we willing to invest in having a better society? If someone has a position of power and agency and access to help cultivate a more just, democratic, and uh, sustainable society, right? Because war only begets war. Trust me. War only begets war. Um, a more just, humane, democratic, and sustainable society. What are we willing to invest? Are we willing to invest a certain amount of privilege in accessing a greater good for many? Because the thing about privilege and the imbalances of equity 
is that the cycle of life is to balance. So if you have a certain level of privilege, there will be other things that will need to be leveraged and balanced against that privilege. In some um, racial philosophies that we have, right? And I'm talking about we in terms of American studies and African-American studies. One thing that we talk about is what's at risk when people embrace white supremacy, when people embrace privilege, what is at risk is that person's humanity. Because accessing that privilege requires a certain level of numbness or distance, social distance, emotional distance from the victimizations of others. But people pay for that in other ways. Pay for that in heart attacks, pay for that in high cholesterol, pay for that in migraines. You know, these things are paid for in other ways, right? The the ways that you may not be emotionally accessible in other relationships with people that you that you love. When when you become when when a person becomes habitually engaging in distancing themselves from empathy, their humanity is at risk. Their personhood is at risk. And it is weighed against that. Let's talk about your writing and how your writing has um, has helped you uh, through your your life since you began to write and 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 your your poetry, how it addresses some of what's going on today. Um, your uh, a bound woman uh, is a dangerous thing. Um, you write on your University of Kentucky uh, website. Um, and by the way, the, the full title of that is uh, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland uh, Explores. And I, I want you to talk to me about the, the, the use of your term Americanness. It explores Americanness within the context of race, gender and current events. Talk to me about Americanness. Well, what I mean by Americanness is uh, these collective values that we discuss and um, platform. And I talk about the ways that these particular Black women engage in these principles as a means of seeking um, justice and as a means of living the context of freedom. So, for example, if you have uh, a teenager that has seen the video of Floyd's murder, that teenager's access to freedom, if they are African-American and or male and or feel marginalized, their access to freedom has been diminished because of that trauma that they have witnessed, right? And so if you have a person that is committed to embodying freedom, and thinks that it's not only a divine right in terms of free will from a spiritual perspective, but also a citizenship right, then there's nothing that you can do to convince that person not to access freedom. So for example, one of the people in the book, um, Harriet Tubman, her commitment to uh, liberating over a thousand people that were enslaved is an act of love. 
freedom means having the ability to love the person that you that that you want to love and in her case i want to point out her relationship with her parents not only did she liberate her parents from the plantation but she started one of the first uh nursing homes or you know or facilities for elderly black people so her parents could rest that's an act of love ida b wells is also in the book ida b wells as we know as a teacher and a journalist came to uh, be someone who advocated for anti-lynching laws because her best friend's husband was torn from her bed and lynched. Again, an act of love. So if you love people that you are in community with, if you are in love with people that, that, that you share space with, then these, these, these loves, this type of love becomes an action item to encourage and sustain growth, development, and the values that are Americanness, right? Which are, you know, abilities to access freedom, democracy, agency for the self, and by extension, others, a collective bargaining in terms of voting. All of those things are present. As a matter of fact, you you do say um, that this is what you've written about the poems uh, in this book, and and I want you to talk to me just briefly after I, I ask you for this uh, about the construct of the book, about the way you thought to put it together. And but first, uh, you write poems in this book. Also, question what are the ripple effects, losses, and in inequalities that provide the context for the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States? Yes. Yes. So again, people like Asada Shakur, people like Angela Davis, people like Barbara Jordan, people like Maxine Waters, people like Kamala Harris, they have invested and believe in democracy so much so that they are holding this country accountable for what this country says are their values. You cannot be an agent for social justice and social change and not believe that these things are true. Because if you didn't have faith in these things, you would abandon that quest. And then your choices would be revolution or to fully assimilate and to accept life as is, right? And so um, I want to keep reiterating that, that each of these women in the book, although they found themselves oppressed in various ways, whether it be by the, the, uh, the you know, the incarceral state into which what I mean is like prisons and how over the past decade, the um, incarceration rate of women has risen over 700% but we continue to talk about the incarceration rate of men. It's an invisibility of women's labor and women's contribution to the United States of America. Um, that is one apex of the book. But then another apex of the book is, is like social constructions. So if you are a person like Sandra Bland, who is well-educated in democracy, you have a college degree, you know what the expectations of your rights as a civilian are, 
not civil rights in terms of black and white rights, but you know your rights. And so when you are accosted, when you are um, pulled over, uh, the First Amendment right is evoked to ask someone, why are they pulling you over? What part of the um, amendment rights include uh, violence, you know? That, that's not a part of the equation. So, of course, someone who is a living, breathing human being who also happens to be intellectual would be a thinking human being about the time and space that they occupy and why they are being targeted. You are... Um... Uh, someone else um, uh, put a label on you, um, which is uh, which I'm, I'm sure you embrace, poet historian. I'm not sure if I um, now I'm, I'm sure I could come up with somebody, but I'm not going to do it on the spur of the moment. I, I don't know of anybody else. You must be very proud of um, of what you've been able to do in, in putting together this work mm-hmm. of, uh, of 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 your art of your, your words with facts. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's not done that often. No. And I am very, very lucky that, um, being the, the strange thinking person that I am, um, (laughs) you know, that's, that's kind of how things come together in my brain. Things don't operate necessarily in categories, right? Things are very relative. So it's an expression of that. But I also want to give credit to um, what I am calling like my black girlhood experience, because I came of age outside of um, New York City in the midst of uh, hip hop and rap music. The arts of DJing was something that I was very immersed in. Like that was the music of my time. Some people came up in soul music. Some people came up in R&B. Some people came of age in jazz and um, other forms of music. But gospel music and hip hop music, particularly the arts of DJing and electronic music, was a part of my development. So um, unconsciously, it's a part of my expression. Now, I didn't know my book was that weird, right? Then it's always people that come up to me, even people that have the same similar upbringing that I do. And they're like, yo, I've never seen a book like this in my life. And I'm like, yeah, and I do. I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful that Bloomsbury allowed me to express myself that way because that's how it all comes together. Right. And the thing about a historian, I want to say that I do. I like history, but history, um, because they only tell linear stories. Their stories um, don't encapsulate the human experience. And it's one reason that I abandoned a career in, in, in history, in the methods of history. But I love an archive. I treat an archive like it's a sandbox. I play in it. It's a place of discovery. I treat it like, like, like the matrix. I tell people I look for the glitch in the matrix. I look for the history that doesn't quite make sense or they took a huge chunk out of it because they don't want you to make connections. And that's, that's the wormhole I'm going in. Uh, in just a couple of minutes that we have left, uh, Dr. Hill, um, where, where do we go from here as a, um, as a society, as an individual, as a, as a white mm-hmm. uh, person of privilege, as a, as a black 
a struggling, unemployed, uh, urban uh, dweller? What, what, what do we do as, as humankind to, to be better? Right. So I want to also say this. With over 40 million people unemployed right now, those differences in class and identity are soon going to fade. So let's start there. Like, you know, middle-class America has been a mythology since about the 90s, right? Like, it's just a set of values. It's not necessarily a set of economic difference, right? So we're going to enter an unprecedented time of struggle. Because right now, there are 40 million people out of work. We haven't even engaged in the ripple effects of, 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 of this double bear economy. And I want to say that we were already in a bear economy before COVID-19. So we must acknowledge that this is a double bear economy. We were already on our way down, right? And so um, it's, it's reform and survival is going to be predicated on love and collectivity. We have been um, challenged to separate ourselves from one another from to consider other people less human. Um, and, and we need to abandon that philosophy if we are going to survive. And I mean that as human beings, if we are going to survive. And we, we have to be very critical and not passive about the ways that we are being victimized. Very critical, very critical. We need to all be engaged. Find out what your strength is, what your skill is, and use that skill and strength towards justice. If you are uneducated about the struggle of other peoples in this country, you can be educated. An organization that I think is a wonderful organization is the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. It's the most comprehensive and interactive. Uh, I would say uh, race and marginalization training that one can engage in. But I, I know about the, the Holocaust and I also know about the, the genocide of Native Americans. These are things that I invested in because I respect human life. So it's important that I understand the sufferings and successes of human life. Dr. Hill, we'll um, we'll put a link to uh, to that organization on our website uh, and uh, and draw people to that. Once again, uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate uh, uh, you so much that uh, you're not only an artist uh, but uh, a terrific scholar and thinker. And uh, thank you for lending your voice uh, to the many that uh, are looking for a better way um, in the future. Thank you for joining us on Think Humanities. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.